0: Chapter 5, verses 18 through 26 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Eric Longman. Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians by Martin Luther. Translated by Theodore Graebner. Chapter 5, verse 18. But if ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law. Here someone may object. How come we are not under the law? You yourself say, Paul, that we have the flesh which wars against the Spirit and brings us into subjection. But Paul says not to let it trouble us. As long as we are led by the Spirit, and are willing to obey the Spirit who resists the flesh, we are not under the law. True believers are not under the law. The law cannot condemn them, although they feel sin and confess it. Great, then, is the power of the Spirit. Led by the Spirit, the law cannot condemn the believer, though he commits real sin. For Christ, in whom we believe, is our righteousness. He is without sin, and the law cannot accuse him. As long as we cling to him, we are led by the Spirit and are free from the law. Even as he teaches good works, the Apostle does not lose sight of the doctrine of justification, but shows at every turn that it is impossible for us to be justified by works. The words, If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are not under the law, are replete with comfort. It happens at times that anger, hatred, impatience, carnal desire, fear, sorrow, or some other lust of the flesh, so overwhelms a man that he cannot shake them off, though he try ever so hard. What should he do? Should he despair? God forbid! Let him say to himself, My flesh seems to be on a warpath against the Spirit again. Go to it, flesh, and rage all you want to, but you are not going to have your way. I follow the leading of the Spirit. When the flesh begins to cut up the only remedy is to take the sword of the Spirit, the word of salvation, and fight against the flesh. If you set the word out of sight, you are helpless against the flesh. I know this to be a fact. I have been assailed by many violent passions, but as soon as I took hold of some scripture passage, my temptations left me. Without the word, I could not have helped myself against the flesh. Verse 19. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Paul is saying, That none of you may hide behind the plea of ignorance, I will enumerate first the works of the flesh, and then also the works of the Spirit. There were many hypocrites among the Galatians, as there are also among us, who pretend to be Christians and talk much about the Spirit, but they walk not according to the Spirit, rather according to the flesh. Paul is out to show them that they are not as holy as they like to have others think they are. Every period of life has its own peculiar temptations. Not one true believer whom the flesh does not again and again incite to impatience, anger, pride. But it is one thing to be tempted by the flesh, and another thing to yield to the flesh, to do its bidding without fear or remorse, and to continue in sin. Christians also fall and perform the lusts of the flesh. David fell horribly into adultery. Peter also fell grievously when he denied Christ. However great these sins were, they were not committed to spite God, but from weakness. When their sins were brought to their attention, these men did not obstinately continue in their sin, but repented. Those who sin through weakness are not denied pardon as long as they rise again and cease to sin. There is nothing worse than to continue in sin. If they do not repent but obstinately continue to fulfill the desires of the flesh, it is a sure sign that they are not sincere. No person is free from temptations. Some are tempted in one way, others in another way. One person is more easily tempted to bitterness and sorrow of spirit, blasphemy, distrust, and despair. Another is more easily tempted to carnal lust, anger, envy, covetousness. But no matter to which sins we are disposed, we are to walk in the Spirit and resist the flesh. Those who are Christ's own crucify their flesh. Some of the old saints labored so hard to attain perfection that they lost the capacity to feel anything. When I was a monk, I often wished I could see a saint. I pictured him as living in the wilderness, abstaining from meat and drink, and living on roots and herbs and cold water this weird conception of those awesome saints I had gained out of the books of the scholastics and church fathers. But we know now from the Scriptures who the true saints are, not those who live in a single life, or make a fetish of days, meats, clothes, and such things. The true saints are those who believe that they are justified by the death of Christ. Whenever Paul writes to the Christians here and there, he calls them the holy children and heirs of God, all who believe in Christ, whether male or female, bond or free, are saints, not in view of their own works, but in view of the merits of God which they appropriate by their faith. Their holiness is a gift, and not their own personal achievement. Ministers of the gospel, public officials, parents, children, masters, servants, etc., are true saints when they take Christ for their wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, and when they fulfill the duties of their several vocations according to the standard of God's Word, and repress the lust and desires of the flesh by the Spirit. Not everybody can resist temptations with equal facilities. Imperfections are bound to show up. But this does not prevent them from being holy. Their unintentional lapses are forgiven if they pull themselves together by faith in Christ." God forbid that we should sit in hasty judgment on those who are weak in faith and life, as long as they love the word of God and make use of the supper of the Lord. I thank God that he has permitted me to see what, as a monk, I so earnestly desired to see, not one but many saints, whole multitudes of true saints, not the kind of saints the papists admire, but the kind of saints Christ wants. I am sure that I am one of Christ's true saints. I am baptized." I believe that Christ my Lord has redeemed me from all my sins, and invested me with his own eternal righteousness and holiness. To hide in caves and dens, to have a bony body, to wear the hair long in the mistaken idea that such departures from normalcy will obtain some special regard in heaven, is not the holy life. A holy life is to be baptized, and to believe in Christ, and to subdue the flesh with the Spirit. To feel the lusts of the flesh is not without profit to us. It prevents us from being vain and from being puffed up with a wicked opinion of our own work righteousness. The monks were so inflated with the opinion of their own righteousness, they thought they had so much holiness that they could afford to sell some of it to others, although their own hearts convinced them of unholiness. The Christian feels the unholy condition of his heart and it makes him feel so low that he cannot trust in his good works. He therefore goes to Christ to find perfect righteousness. This keeps a Christian humble. Verses 19 and 20. Now the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, Paul does not enumerate all the works of the flesh, but only certain ones. First, he mentions various kinds of carnal lusts, as adultery, fornication, wantonness, etc. But carnal lust is not the only work of the flesh, and so he counts among the works of the flesh also idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, and the like. These terms are so familiar that they do not require lengthy explanations. Idolatry the best religion, the most fervent devotion, without Christ is plain idolatry. It has been considered a holy act when the monks in their cells meditate upon God and His works, and in a religious frenzy kneel down to pray and to weep for joy. Yet Paul calls it simply idolatry. Every religion which worships God in ignorance or neglect of His Word and His will is idolatry. They may think about God christ and heavenly things but they do it after their own fashion and not after the word of god they have an idea that their clothing their mode of living and their conduct are holy and pleasing to christ they not only expect to pacify christ by the strictness of their life but also expect to be rewarded by him for their good deeds Hence, their best spiritual thoughts are wicked thoughts any worship of god any religion without christ is idolatry In Christ alone is God well pleased. I have said before that the works of the flesh are manifest, but idolatry puts on such a good front and acts so spiritual that the sham of it is recognized only by true believers. Witchcraft This sin was very common before the light of the gospel appeared. When I was a child there were many witches and sorcerers around who bewitched cattle and people particularly children and did much harm but now that the gospel is here you do not hear so much about it because the gospel drives the devil away now he bewitches people in a worse way with spiritual sorcery witchcraft is a brand of idolatry as witches used to bewitch cattle and men so idolaters i e all the self-righteous go around to bewitch god and to make him out as one who justifies men not by grace through faith in christ but by the works of men's own choosing. They bewitch and deceive themselves. If they continue in their wicked thoughts of God, they will die in their idolatry. Sects. Under sects, Paul here understands heresies. Heresies have always been found in the Church. What unity of faith can exist among all the different monks and the different orders? None, whatever. There is no unity of spirit, no agreement of minds, but great dissension in the papacy. There is no conformity in doctrine, faith, and life. On the other hand, among evangelical Christians, the word, faith, religion, sacraments, service, Christ, God, heart, and mind are common to all. This unity is not disturbed by outward differences of station or of occupation. Drunkenness, gluttony. Paul does not say that eating and drinking are works of the flesh, but Intemperance in eating and drinking, which is a common vice nowadays, is a work of the flesh. Those who are given to excess are to know that they are not spiritual but carnal. Sentence is pronounced upon them that they shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Paul desires that Christians avoid drunkenness and gluttony, that they live temperate and sober lives, in order that the body may not grow soft and sensual. Verse 21. Of the which I tell you before as I have also told you in the past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. This is a hard saying, but very necessary for those false Christians and hypocrites who speak much about the gospel, about faith and the Spirit, yet live after the flesh. But this hard sentence is directed chiefly at the heretics, who are at large with their own self-importance, that they may be frightened into taking up the fight of the Spirit against the flesh. Verses 22 and 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. The Apostle does not speak of the works of the Spirit as he spoke of the works of the flesh, but he attaches to these Christian virtues a better name. He calls them the fruits of the Spirit. Love. It would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love, for love embraces all the fruits of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul attributes to love all the fruits of the Spirit, charity suffereth long and is kind, etc. Here he lets love stand by itself among other fruits of the Spirit, to remind the Christians to love one another, in honor preferring one another, TO ESTEEM OTHERS MORE THAN THEMSELVES BECAUSE THEY HAVE CHRIST AND THE HOLY GHOST WITHIN THEM. JOY. JOY means sweet thoughts of Christ, melodious hymns and psalms, praises and thanksgiving, with which Christians instruct, inspire, and refresh themselves. God does not like doubt and dejection. He hates dreary doctrine, gloomy and melancholy thought. God likes cheerful hearts. He did not send his Son to fill us with sadness, but to gladden our hearts. For this reason the prophets, apostles, and Christ himself urge, yes, command us, to rejoice and be glad. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, thy King cometh unto thee! Zechariah 9.9 In the Psalms we are repeatedly told to be joyful in the Lord. Paul says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Christ says, rejoice, for your names are written in heaven. Peace. Peace towards God and men. Christians are to be peaceful and quiet, not argumentative, not hateful, but thoughtful and patient. There can be no peace without long-suffering, and therefore Paul lists this virtue next. Long-suffering. Long-suffering is that quality which enables a person to bear adversity, injury, reproach, and makes them patient to wait for the improvement of those who have done him wrong. When the devil finds that he cannot overcome certain persons by force, he tries to overcome them in the long run. He knows that we are weak, and cannot stand anything long. Therefore he repeats his temptation time and again until he succeeds. To withstand his continued assaults, we must be long-suffering, and patiently wait for the devil to get tired of his game. GENTLENESS Gentleness in conduct and life. True followers of the gospel must not be sharp and bitter, but gentle, mild, courteous, and soft-spoken, which should encourage others to seek their company. Gentleness can overlook other people's faults and cover them up. Gentleness is always glad to give in to others. Gentleness can get along with forward and difficult persons, according to the old pagan, saying, You must know the manners of your friends, but you must not hate them. Such a gentle person was our Savior Jesus Christ, as the Gospel portrays him. Of Peter it is recorded that he wept whenever he remembered the sweet gentleness of Christ in his daily contact with people. Gentleness is an excellent virtue and very useful in every walk of life. Goodness. A person is good when he is willing to help others in their need. Faith enlisting faith among the fruits of the spirit paul obviously does not mean faith in christ but faith in men such faith is not suspicious of people but believes the best naturally the possessor of such faith will be deceived but he lets it pass he is ready to believe all men but he will not trust all men where this virtue is lacking men are suspicious forward and wayward and will believe nothing nor yield to anybody No matter how well a person says or does anything, they will find fault with it, and if you do not humor them, you can never please them. It is quite impossible to get along with them. Such faith in people, therefore, is quite necessary. What kind of life would this be if one person could not believe another person? Meekness. A person is meek when he is not quick to get angry. Many things occur in daily life to provoke a person's anger. But the Christian gets over his anger by meekness. Temperance. Christians are to lead sober and chaste lives. They should not be adulterers, fornicators, or sensualists. They should not be quarrellers or drunkards. In the first and second chapters of the epistle to Titus, the apostle admonishes bishops, young women, and married folks to be chaste and pure. Verse 23. Against such there is no law. There is a law, of course, but it does not apply to those who bear these fruits of the Spirit. The law is not given for the righteous man. A true Christian conducts himself in such a way that he does not need any law to warn or restrain him. He obeys the law without compulsion. The law does not concern him. As far as he is concerned, there would not have to be any law. Verse 24. And they that are Christ's, have crucified the flesh with the affections and lusts. True believers are no hypocrites. They crucify the flesh with its evil desires and lusts. Inasmuch as they have not altogether put off the sinful flesh, they are inclined to sin. They do not fear or love God as they should. They are likely to be provoked to anger, to envy, to impatience, to carnal lust, and other emotions. But they will not do the things to which the flesh incites them. They crucify the flesh, with its evil desires and lusts, by fasting and exercise, and above all, by a walk in the Spirit. To resist the flesh in this manner is to nail it to the cross. Although the flesh is still alive, it cannot very well act upon its desires, because it is bound and nailed to the cross. Verse 25 If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit a little while ago the apostle had condemned those who are envious and start heresies and schisms as if he had forgotten that he had already berated them the apostle once more reproves those who provoke and envy others was not one reference to them sufficient he repeats his admonition in order to emphasize the viciousness of pride that had caused all the trouble in the churches of galatia and has always caused the church of christ no end of difficulties In his epistle to Titus, the apostle states that a vainglorious man should not be ordained as a minister, for pride, as St. Augustine points out, is the mother of all heresies. Now, vainglory has always been a common poison in the world. There is no village too small to contain someone who wants to be considered wiser or better than the rest. Those who have been bitten by pride usually stand upon the reputation for learning and wisdom. Vainglory is not nearly so bad in a private person, or even in an official, as it is in a minister. When the poison of vainglory gets into the church, you have no idea what havoc it can cause. You may argue about knowledge, art, money, countries, and the like, without doing particular harm, but you cannot quarrel about salvation or damnation, about eternal life and eternal death, without grave damage to the church. No wonder Paul exhorts all ministers of the Word to guard against this poison. He writes, If we live in the Spirit, where the Spirit is, men gain new attitudes. Where formerly they were vainglorious, spiteful, and envious, they now become humble, gentle, and patient. Such men seek not their own glory, but the glory of God. They do not provoke each other to wrath or envy, but prefer others to themselves. As dangerous to the church as this abominable pride is, yet there is nothing more common. The trouble with the ministers of Satan is that they look upon the ministry as a stepping-stone to fame and glory, and right there you have the seed for all sorts of dissensions. Because Paul knew that the vainglory of the false apostles had caused the churches of Galatia endless trouble, he makes it his business to suppress this abominable vice. In his absence, the false apostles went to work in Galatia, They pretended that they had been on intimate terms with the apostles, while Paul had never seen Christ in person or had much contact with the rest of the apostles. Because of this they delivered him, rejected his doctrine, and boosted their own. In this way they troubled the Galatians and caused quarrels among them until they provoked and envied each other, which goes to show that neither the false apostles nor the Galatians walked after the Spirit but after the flesh the gospel is not there for us to aggrandize ourselves the gospel is to aggrandize christ and the mercy of god it holds out to men eternal gifts that are not gifts of our own manufacture what right have we to receive praise and glory for gifts that are not of our own making no wonder that god in his special grace subjects the ministers of the gospel to all kinds of afflictions otherwise they could not cope with this ugly beast called vainglory. If no persecution, no cross or reproach trailed the doctrine of the gospel, but only praise and reputation, the ministers of the gospel would choke with pride. Paul had the spirit of Christ. Nevertheless, there was given unto him the messenger of Satan to buffet him, in order that he should not come to exalt himself because of the grandeur of his revelations. St. Augustine's opinion is well taken. If a minister of the gospel is praised, he is in danger. If he is despised, he is also in danger. The ministers of the gospel should be men who are not too easily affected by praise or criticism, but simply speak out the benefit and the glory of Christ and seek the salvation of souls. Whenever you are being praised, remember it is not you who is being praised, but Christ, to whom all praise belongs. When you preach the word of God in its purity, and also live accordingly, it is not your own doing, but God's doing. And when people praise you, they really mean to praise God in you. When you understand this, and you should, because what hast thou that thou didst not receive? You will not flatter yourself on the one hand, and on the other hand, you will not carry yourself with the thought of resigning from the ministry when you are insulted, reproached, or persecuted. It is really kind of God to send so much infamy, reproach, hatred, and cursing our way to keep us from getting proud of the gifts of God in us. We need a millstone around our neck to keep us humble. There are a few on our side who love and revere us for the ministry of the Word, but for every one of these there are a hundred on the other side who hate and persecute us. The Lord is our glory. Such gifts as we possess we acknowledge to be the gifts of God, given to us for the good of the church of Christ. Therefore we are not proud because of them. We know that more is required of them to whom much is given than of such to whom little is given. We also know that God is no respecter of persons. A plain factory hand who does his work faithfully pleases God just as much as a minister of the word. Verse 26. Let us not be desirous of vain glory. To desire vain glory is to desire lies, because when one person praises another, he tells lies. What is there in anybody to praise? But it is different when the ministry is praised. We should not only desire people to praise the ministry of the gospel, but also do our utmost to make the ministry worthy of praise, because this will make the ministry more effective. Paul warns the Romans not to bring Christianity into disrepute. Let not then your good be evil spoken of, Romans fourteen sixteen. He also begged the Corinthians to give no offense in anything that the ministry be not blamed, 1 Corinthians 6.3. When people praise our ministry, they are not praising our persons, but God. Verse 26. Provoking one another, envying one another. Such is the ill effect of vainglory. Those who teach errors provoke others. When others disapprove and reject the doctrine, the teachers of errors get angry in turn, and then you have strife and trouble. The sectarians hate us furiously, because we will not approve their errors. We did not attack them directly. We merely called attention to certain abuses in the church. They did not like it, and became sore at us because it hurt their pride. They wished to be the lone rulers of the church. End of chapter 5 of Commentary on St. Paul's Epistle to the Galatians Recording by Eric Longman, Marietta, Georgia